The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. On behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I am Nick Weaver. And I'm Marissa Jordan. Happy Diversity Education Week. Yay, Diversity Education Week. To celebrate today, we've got several specially themed pieces lined up. Coming up later on, Jake Winters reviews Boy, followed by a review of the Bots album Pink Palms from Nick. Yep, that is a throwback review. Their album debuted in 2014. They haven't got anything new yet, but if they had, I would have uh, done that instead. Uh, coming up a little bit before that, Colleen Ganan Ferguson brings you Gen Ed. This week, she talks about GLBT Month with the GLBT Center at NCSU. Will Mayo brings you Taste of the Triangle. This week, he reviews the restaurant David's Dumplings and Noodle Bar, which is right by the campus. Uh, Brooke Yanyan interviews a group of students who went to Atlanta on an alternative service break. Now, I don't know what exactly that entails, but that sounds interesting. I actually uh, did a piece six months ago or so, where I also interviewed someone who did that. It's, a, it's an interesting program. I would suggest tuning in for that one. Is that like uh, you, you go down and build houses um, while it's like raining and monsooning? Is that what yeah. the service is? <laughs> they also have some for spring break where you can go and just, you know, camp in Florida. It's, it's a cool program. Just a bunch of drunk teenagers going spring break <laughs> and then building houses spontaneously. Sounds like a foolproof plan. All right. Well, stay tuned. Hey WKNC listeners, thanks for joining us with Arts Afternoons. This is Brooke and today I have with me a group who during fall break took a service trip to Atlanta, Georgia through Alternative Service Break or ASB. This trip was organized through the Women's Center on the fifth floor of the Tally Student Center and focused on issues of civil rights and gender equity. As a part of Diversity Education Week here on campus, we wanted to share some of our experiences about what we did and how it affected us. So I have Brianna here with me, and I just wanted to know what was your favorite part of the trip and why? I think my favorite part of the trip was definitely the community that we built with everyone who went on the alternative service break trip through the seven-hour car ride in a 15-passenger van to the reflections late at night, and I'm talking like midnight reflections. I think my favorite part was definitely the community that was built. Um, we built strong bonds. We talked about those conversations that are rarely had in society. And I think that I'm, I'm really excited on how we can further engage our community um, later on in the year. So I definitely think my favorite part was all the great friends and family that I made on this trip. Awesome, thank you so much for sharing with us. So I have another member of the ASB Atlanta trip here with me, Dejan. So Dejan, would you like to share your favorite part of the trip and why? Hey, my favorite part about our ASB trip to Atlanta was going on the Festival of Lights. The Festival of Lights was a community-orientated uh, event 
that was made by someone called Muffin Moore, a church member who was called by God to be a light within our community. The Festival of Lights was created to bring the community together in unity and support, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. The thing that brought me the most joy that day was being able to see that no one felt excluded during the entire festival. The homeless, others with different religious views, even children were given the freedom to relax and be themselves during the parade and other festivities within the Festival of Lights. I am more empowered to continue to help build the communities around me, and I wish I can be as impactful as Mother Moore was for me and for everyone in her community. That's great. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Thank you, Dejan, so much for sharing. And here with me, I also have Majesty, who went on the trip. So, Majesty, what was your favorite part? I had so much fun on the Atlanta trip, but my favorite organization was an after-school club named Girls, Inc., this organization empowered school-aged females to aspire for any careers that they could dream of with a simple but effective phrase, you are strong, smart, and bold. I really believe there should be more organizations like this because they give young children a helpful foundation that strengthens their confidence. I enjoyed being there and helping the girls understand that they were creative and unique. Go Girls, Inc. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. That was definitely a great experience. Thank you for sharing. I myself had the privilege of going on the Atlanta ASB trip, and I definitely would say it was an amazing experience, and I would recommend it to any students here who are able to apply to the program or anyone who's ever around Tally, just stop in the Women's Center. The director there, Jennifer Castillo, is amazing, and all of the student workers there are nothing but kind, helpful, and they really have great passions for what they're doing. This trip has definitely given me a lot of insight about a lot of the social justice issues that face our world today, particularly gender equity and civil rights issues. I want to thank my volunteers for being here today and sharing a little bit of their experience. I hope that you guys enjoyed hearing a little look into our fall break lives. Thank you once again, WKNC listeners, for joining me today. This has been Brooke on Arts Afternoons. Hello, you're listening to a special episode of Gen Ed, an NC State student-focused podcast recorded from the production room of WKNC FM HD1 Raleigh. This week's episode is celebrating Diversity Education Week 2016 at North Carolina State University. I sat down with the Assistant Director of the GLBT Center at NCSU to talk about microaggressions and intersectionality. You are not alone on this campus, and there are so many different groups and organizations that would love to make you feel more at home. Today, we'll be highlighting a few of those organizations that exist within and through the GLBT Center. If you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed on Gen Ed, please email podcast at wknc.org. Thanks for listening.
It's GLBT History Month, so what is the center doing to celebrate? Absolutely. So this History Month, we're focusing on um, carving out and creating space in dismantling systems of oppression. And so really having a lot of our focus on institutional oppression that exists for not only GLBT, not only talking about basically systemic oppression as it relates to the GLBT community, but systemic oppression as it relates to all our communities um, intersectionally. So one program that we have coming up actually tomorrow, which will be the 12th, is what is racial justice? So talking about racial justice as a construct and how we can work towards becoming better allies and also looking across the intersections of identity, whether that is race and ethnicity as it relates to other aspects of your identity. And then we have some great speakers coming in talking about the Voter Rights Act. Uh, we had a speaker that was going to come in talking about institutionalized oppression for GLBT youth in the juvenile justice system, but they weren't able to come this year. But just along those same lines of really trying to create space and, and, and carving and and, and cultivate a conversation around institutionalized oppression and systems of oppression as it relates to GLBT history. So what kind of student groups do you have within the center right now? Yeah, so we have six different student groups, two of which are student organizations that are affiliated with like student involvement. So Jablika, which is our largest student organization, it's kind of our umbrella organization as well. It houses the majority of the students that utilize our space. They meet on Tuesdays from seven to about nine every Tuesday. And that group is made up of a leadership board of student leaders and also advised by myself and the director of the GLBT Center, Renee Wells. And they do programs that talk about a variety of issues that relate to GLBT experience, whether it's um, issues happening on campus, whether it's understanding more about different identities within the GLBT spectrum, and also creating space for community building. So they do lots of fun events, they have movie nights, they also do crafting and things of that nature. OSTEM, which is our organization called OUT for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. So looking at our students who identify as GLBT but are also in our STEM fields and really working on kind of professional development, career focused, also how do you be out while still being within these very science dominated fields and what does that look like for you and what does that experience like for you. And then our other four groups are more discussion-based groups. Um, we have one called Ace Pack, which looks at our asexual and aromantic students and their allies really trying to cultivate community for that group as well as increase a dialogue across an identity that might not get as much attention or much visibility. We also have BIPAN. They meet on Mondays every other Monday. So there's BIPAN, which is another open group that is for bisexual and pansexual and allied communities. And then T-Files, which is a closed group for our trans and gender non-conforming students. And then QPOC, which is a group for our queer people of color. Okay. So next question is about that term you threw around. So what does it mean to be intersectional? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and I love talking about intersectionality. <laughs> so if you really want to talk about intersectionality, you got to get to its origins, right? And you have to talk about how intersectionality came to be as a construct. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, back in, I believe, 1989, was this law professor um, at Stanford, and she was really critiquing the fact that the feminist movement didn't really cultivate a space or acknowledge the identities of women of color within that movement. So they were talking about race as a separate construct and, and feminism as a separate construct and not talking about the ways that those interact and overlap with one another. She recognized that there were different oppressions that a woman of color was facing as opposed to a white woman or um, a woman who didn't identify as a woman of color. 
And so from that, talking about ways that you have to recognize all of the identities that people hold and carve space and cultivate a conversation around those identities because each of those identities carries different levels of oppression that can potentially impact the way that you navigate and move through this world. So looking across this whole spectrum of identity that we all hold and really understanding how each of those overlap or interconnected and cannot be readily parsed apart. If I was to give an elevator yeah. pitch about um, intersectionality. intersectionality, I would say that we all live these very multifaceted lives and we all have lots of identities that we hold. And with those identities that we hold, there are different opportunities for privilege, for power, and for oppression. And intersectionality recognizes that you hold all of those different identities simultaneously and that you cannot say that today I'm going to identify as a man and tomorrow I'll identify as black or today I'll identify as cisgender and tomorrow I'll identify as gay. No, you identify as all of that all at once and with that there's a lot of baggage that comes with that and that really impacts the way that you move and navigate through this world. Mm -hmm. So recognizing that and creating space for that and also working on overcoming barriers that may be associated with some of those identities. So why is it important to recognize intersectionality? Going back to the whole, we're not living these singular lives, like in order for you to bring yourself fully into any conversation, into any space that you're going to, you're going to bring all of those identities. And if for some reason one of those identities isn't supported in that space, it feels like you have to negotiate what you bring to that table at that moment. And we want to create spaces where people don't have to negotiate their identities. We want to create spaces where people don't have to say, I'm going to put this ex-identity on the back burner in order to be in the space comfortably. We want to make sure that we are teaching folks that you need to be intersectional in your thoughts and your practices and also in the ways that you support people. And so thinking about all of that working together and recognizing that we all have these multifaceted lives that come with multiple identities that need to be acknowledged and, and celebrated at the same levels. So what are some of the challenges um, you see students face in regards to having like intersectional identities? Well, one, the concept is really complex, right? So a lot of times folks don't even realize the impact that these identities have on each other. Um, sometimes people won't even recognize that these identities are being influenced until they sit back and really reflect on how they're being treated or how they're moving across this world, right? And so for this, for a lot of people, this being this new concept, it's something that we have to really learn. And then in that learning, there's a lot of unlearning that we have to do as well. And so sometimes folks aren't ready for that unlearning or it takes them a lot longer to do some of the unlearning that's necessary to create these spaces that are a little bit more inclusive. When we're thinking about ways that we can be inclusive in our thoughts and our practices, we have to think about the whole person and not just individual aspects of their identity. And from that, we can start to be more aware of what we do, how we impact and influence others, and how they are influenced and impacted by our actions and our thoughts. Do you want to talk about microaggressions? Yeah, so microaggressions, there so there's three different types of microaggressions. But when we're talking about microaggressions, we're talking about any instance, comment, um, action or behavior that is really directed towards somebody, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and it's 
kind of this subtle form, the subtle snub that someone does to somebody else based on identity that they hold. So you can have a microaggression that's racially based. So if you try to compliment someone on, I just had this conversation actually today, um, a friend of mine changed her hairstyle and her hairstyle now looks very much more um, wavy and European, but everyone's complimenting her about this all the time and so she basically said but my natural hair wasn't something that you complimented at the same level at the same time so this is kind of a microaggression even though you're complimenting me on this new hairstyle that I have you're also telling me that the hairstyle I had before wasn't acceptable or it wasn't something that you deemed as beautiful also thinking about the times where we're trying to be quote-unquote polite to folks but actually are saying something that's actually doing harm to people, like complimenting someone on their their accent or their, or their grammar when they're a, a student who's an international student, or when you're doing something like trying to quote unquote dance, like insert race or ethnicity, things of that nature, like these comments that seem really silly, but also are really hurtful and really harmful. And so for a lot of folks, these microaggressions as they happen and as they exist, people don't recognize that they're doing it because of the fact that it's so ingrained in our systems, it's so ingrained in things that we think are complementary but actually are not and actually are very harmful and have a larger impact on people. Especially in the South, I feel like it's a lot of our culture is being two-faced. Like, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I say that all the time, too. <laughs> How can we stop performing microaggressions like yeah. for allies and yeah. who aren't um, minorities? So when you talk about microaggressions, I think it's also important that we recognize our implicit and unconscious bias that we have and recognizing that we all carry some form of implicit and unconscious bias. So with that, starting to stop it before it comes out and starting to, to act on it before we say something that's going to be hurtful or harmful. When we become aware of those implicit biases or those unconscious biases that we hold, we can actually start to do that unlearning of those implicit biases and then start to create more inclusive spaces and allow people to be themselves and not create these stereotypes for folks that then impact the way that we see them or the way that we communicate with one another. So one is always just raising your awareness and just being conscious of what you're saying and what you're doing. And also microaggressions happen, but I always find it really interesting the way people respond when they're called out on the microaggressions that are happening. A lot of times people go into this very defensive, well, that's not what I meant, or you know me and that's not how I think. Well, that's what you said and this is the impact that it's had on me. So owning that, learning from that, trying to not make that mistake again, and trying to really be cognizant of what that message that you said, the weight that it carries for someone who is from a marginalized group or someone who's from a group that's not, um, that's being directly affected by that microaggression. So are there any resources within Jablitka that can help educate students, make them more conscious? Yeah. So attending a Jablica meeting in general is a way that you can become more conscious of microaggressions or just being more conscious of some of the language that may be actually harmful or microaggressions that can be really hurtful. Uh, attending programs from any organization that's affiliated with the campus community centers and becoming more aware of some of those languages and some of those um, actions that are have some unintended harm. We also have a workshop that we do in the GLBT Center, mainly for our faculty and staff, but if a student were to come 
we would never turn a student away. And actually one is coming up on October 31st called Examining Microaggressions and really Perfect. unpacking some of those. Um, the GOBT Center also has worked with Multicultural Student Affairs, African American Cultural Center to um, put on programs and events around microaggressions and how that impacts the GOBT community as well as communities of colors, as well as um, communities that are differently abled, as well as different socioeconomic statuses and things mm -hmm. of that nature. Is that the advocate program? Yes, the advocate program. Um, our advocate program is geared specifically for our faculty and staff for a continuing education program mm -hmm. and an engagement program. But we've had students in the past who participate in an advocate program and love the workshops that we put on and, and want to know more and want to get involved more. And mm -hmm. we totally welcome that. So Project SAFE is a, one particular um, workshop that's about three hours long and it talks to you about issues that impact the GOBT community, um, how that looks at the national level, internationally, and also on NC State's campus. Also talking about ways that we can be more inclusive in our thoughts and our practices, how we can cultivate classrooms and, and friend groups that can be a little bit more inclusive and more supportive of our GOBT community, as well as just basically giving you an opportunity to understand some concepts and language that you may not be familiar with. There are a lot of terms under the GOBT umbrella that folks may not have experience, may not have a keen understanding on, so we try to talk about all of that or as much as we can within that three hours and as much as the conversation allows us to. Are there any topics that you frequently hear students discuss, like issues going on on campus or that they're not feeling like safe or anything um, like that? There have been lots of talks going on right now around um, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and really calling to attention a lot of inequities that are happening and, and a lot of campus climate that's going on, especially for our students of color. And then thinking about that on a larger scale, thinking about how that impacts our campus community and messages that send to incoming students as well as our alumni. And so really try striving to find spaces and, and ways that we as an institution, we as staff members within an institution can support students and, and making sure that students are affirmed and validated within the campus and community centers. That is what we do, right? So we make sure that students have a space that they can call home, a safe space where they can be themselves, a space where they can grow and they can learn. And now it's reaching out from just the campus community centers and students who frequent that to the students who don't necessarily frequent these spaces, how do we educate those students as well? So that way your safe space isn't one or two places on campus, your safe space is the entire mm -hmm. campus as a whole. So working on our education outreach for that and making sure that we're very intentional in that work that we're doing. What would you say to a student who wants to come in but is scared? The first step <laughs> is always just to walk in the door. Um, if you are afraid to come in for whatever reason, reach out to myself, reach out to Andy, Renee, or Lynn. We via email we are always available we will meet with you outside of the space so that way you don't necessarily have to take an identity when you walk in this door a lot of times students a barrier for students is that initial walking through that door because you do us kind of assume an identity whether it's perceived or your actual identity and so making sure that you feel supported in the way that you want to be supported and making sure that you get connected to the resources that you want to get connected to. Um, we are available for individual consultation. We're available just to talk. We are here to get you connected to other parts of campus if that's something that you feel more comfortable with. But we're just here to 
better help and better serve our campus community. So if you are afraid to walk in the door, we will meet you where you are within reason. <laughs> as long as it's on campus. <laughs> are there any organizations in the greater Raleigh area you guys are partnered with? Yeah, we work um, a lot with, well, we work um, some with our LGBT Center of Raleigh, which is in downtown Raleigh, um, which is a resource that we often refer people to. And if folks want to get connected to a more community-based organizing, they can do that. The LGBT Center of Durham is also a great space um, that we work with a lot. And then just organizations that come to our campus, like the Alliance of AIDS Services for Carolina. Um, they come every last Wednesday of the month to do free HIV and STI testing on our campus and we host them here. And with that, you don't have to bring any insurance documentation. They just do free testing for you. And that's a great resource for those who just want to get monthly checkups. Yeah, I think that education is always super important when you are thinking about being more inclusive, thinking about diversity. Um, diversity Education Week, right? It's a thing. Um, so I think that oftentimes people have this magical way of thinking where if I have X number of diverse friends that I'm magically diverse. No, that is not how it works at all. There is so much ongoing education that people need to do um, to be more inclusive in their thoughts and their practices. There are ways that your friend group might respond to situations that other folks may not respond to. So being aware of that and, and, and being okay with not knowing everything and, and being uncomfortable and some of the things that you don't know and working towards comfort by learning more and interacting more. I also think it's important to step outside of that comfort zone that you have and go to different organizations, go to different meetings, um, go to different programs, things that you may not necessarily want or may not necessarily think that is for you could be for you. So going ahead and attending those meetings and those events and, and learning about what's going on for that community as well as understanding that that community whatever they're talking about in that event for that particular community may not be reflective of the entire community and so not generalizing and not stereotyping which seems really easy enough but it's not so being prepared for that and then also just being prepared to do a lot of unlearning of the things that we've been taught oftentimes we've been really good teachers of the bad messages or really good students of the bad messages that we've received so doing some of that unlearning is going to be crucial when you want to be more inclusive in your thoughts and in your practices. Have you seen any conflict within the, because we were talking about intersectionality, mm -hmm. like, have you seen any conflict between um, people of different identities, like um, queer students of color and white gay students? The reason why we have um, queer people of color as, a, as a, a separate community group, that's a close community group, and, and I think this is something that is not novel to any any GLBT center or any space whatsoever, is that th there is some inherent racism that exists within um, GLBT communities, and so there is a lot of isms that happen and, and a lot of microaggressions that could potentially happen for folks, and we're trying to create safer spaces for people who identify as people of color and and a part of the queer community. We're trying to educate those who are a part of the larger queer community that don't identify as people of color and making sure that we are 
reducing those instances of racism that may happen, reducing those instances of microaggressions that are happening, and, and opening up a larger dialogue so that the community can really be supportive and community can really be affirming. On our campus, we're doing a very good job of being intentional in our intersectional approach. Intentional in our intersectional approach, so that is a mouthful. <laughs> but being really intentional and, and making sure that we are cultivating those safe spaces, but also educating our students to be more mindful of their thoughts and how that impacts and how that might send a message of unwelcoming for someone who doesn't identify as non as white and part of the queer community. And how do we shape our environment to be more inclusive and supportive? And how do we work to invite people of all identities into this space and really support every single person that wants to come through that door. So yeah, there is there is some issues that might come from that and but from for the work that we're doing, we're really intentional about being really intersectional in our approaches. Definitely stop by the GLBT Center uh, Monday yeah. through Friday. Why is this center called GLBT instead of LGBT? You know, we get that question a lot actually. Um, our center is called GLBT Center because when our center was first conceived or first created, the LGBT Center of Raleigh was already a mm -hmm. thing and already an organization that had been founded. And so we didn't want people to get confused um, when they do the search for the GLBT Center. And so we just flipped one letter and made it the GLBT Center of NC State. For more information and updates on WKNC's podcast channel, please follow WKNC 88.1 on Tumblr, SoundCloud, and on the iTunes store where all of our podcasts are available for download. Thanks for listening. Hi, my name is Preston Keith. I am the assistant director for the GLBT Center. And when I'm not advocating for GLBT rights, I am listening to WKNC. <laughs>
because it's a beautiful stone. What we're most looking forward to is pushing people outside their comfort zone when it comes to style. A lot of times people walk past our booths and they say, oh, these colors are too bright or oh, these patterns are too bold. But if you come in and you put something on, there's a difference once you put it on. And so we want people to open their minds, try some things, get out of their comfort zone a little bit and see what they might love. My name is Hanan. I'm from Lebanon. Lebanon is an Arab country in the Middle East on the Mediterranean Sea. The main theme this year for the cultural are popular games in each country. And in Lebanon, backgammon is one of the most popular games people play or board games. It's very popular. Nowadays, not as much growing up there was a game I don't know I don't know what's the name in English but I just saw a version in it at the Indian booth and you play it with seashells and it's made out it's a board game made out of cloth we used to play it a lot when we were kids my name is Lina Bernard I am from Colombia I was born in Bogota the capital I been here uh, here in Raleigh, uh, like eight years ago. So I'm Masha Kananov. Well, Maria is the formal name, and we have a nickname for Maria as Masha. So I'm I'm from Russia, Russian Federation, to be precise, because that's the right way to hold the country. Came here 21 years ago. So basically, the international festival organized committee they provide us a theme, and everyone who participates need to to to, to present their booth with that theme in mind. So this year it was the. Uh, games across the world um, so we decided instead of going with the real sport very well-known games to represent some uh, traditional Russian games that not necessarily many people know of and we have four of those shown in our booth but the booth is decorated in a traditional way it's called Terimok so Terim basically is a half the food the game is called Lapta, and it's actually very similar to your guys' baseball. So it's kind of hard to say who came first, probably us, just because this game has been played in Russia for five, six, seven hundred years. Um, it was lost a little bit in the last 200 years, but it's coming back again. But it's a very similar concept. You can see on the picture, you have a bait and you have a ball and you throw, one throws the ball and the other tries to. This rules along those lines. 
but that's just one of them and a lot of boys obviously play that my name is Mariko Mariko Porter I am from Japan I'm representing Japan actually well, we are raising a fund for the uh, Japanese school of rally so that's the school that the uh, those Japanese kids you know those Japanese kids come here for a few years to you know with their parents because parents got a job here and stay here a few years and have to go back but those kids still have to keep up with the Japanese you know the school thing that they have to keep up with and for those kids they um, uh, we have school the, the supplementary school we have it on Saturday for six hours and I'm trying to raise funds for the school it's fun to you know meet all these people from all over the country and I came to the States when I was 18 to go to school and then I met my husband who's from Louisiana I got married I decided to stay here so um, so, so there are a bunch of people just like me you know like people so somehow came to the States and decided to stay here because we love you know being here so much and this is the place that I can meet with those people in, who has this is a place that I can introduce my background and where I came from what I grew up with to uh, the people that you know my husband grew up with so it's I love this opportunity and I'm really just I'm just really happy to be here I am Carrie Pickett. I'm from North Carolina, born and raised, and I hail from Swansboro on the coast. So I am here at the Japanese booth, even though I'm a native North Carolinian, because I play traditional Japanese instruments. I play the koto and the taiko, which is the Japanese drum, and the Japanese zither. And I really am interested in the Japanese aesthetic. And I've been volunteering now for, you know, 10 years with the Nippon Club of the Triangle. I am absolutely and 100% not fluent in Japanese. <laughs> um, it's a lot easier to read Japanese, and when you're learning a second language as someone, as, as an adult, it's easier to listen to conversation. Uh, my friend over here, Joseph, is actually quite fluent in Japanese, really good. Uh, he, he rolls his eyes at me, but he's quite good. So if you want anyone to say anything in Japanese, you're gonna have to get Joseph to do it. <laughs> All right, let me hand it over to Joseph so you can ask him some questions in Japanese. Okay, hi. I'm Joe Roth. I'm one of the uh, directors for the Nippon Club of the Triangle. And we participate every year here at the International Festival. We also have a summer festival that we do. Um, and we just try to, you know, encourage uh, intermingling of Japanese and North Carolinians to get to know each other. That's our big mission, and so we just love doing that sort of thing. <laughs> so you are fluent in Japanese? I can speak a little bit, yes. Give us your best sentence in Japanese and then tell us what it yeah, so the theme for this year, uh, the, the International Festival, is game, right? So everybody is trying to present the game from their native country, right? And um, for this year, we are presenting three games that originated in Iran, in, uh, or Persia, that, you know, the way that, you know, Western people know Iran as. Um, we have backgammon, and... Um, a ritual that you know is kind of hard to translate, but it's basically um, 
let's say gymnastics, right, gym, your, you know, and polo, which is very famous, but I bet nobody really knows that it originated in, in, in Iran or Persia, but actually it dates back to kind of around um, 2,500 years ago, around, you know, um, that time, and we have very solid, um, you know, documentation around 300 um, AD, uh, it's basically the kings on that time used to uh, basically do this game and actually it had a lot of casualty because it was a kind of dangerous game at that time. Well, I mean, nowadays they have helmet and stuff, uh, all protection thing, but I bet on that time they, they wouldn't have all those things. So a lot of kings would basically die just because of the, you know, they fall from the horse and another horse would step on them. I am honestly so glad we were able to attend the International Festival this year, and I would highly suggest going if you ever have the chance. I was able to learn so much from everyone there, and everyone was incredibly personable. Every once in a while, it's good to push your boundaries, talk to new people who may or may not be like you, and hear what they have to say. I think the Raleigh International Festival really captures those values. I'd like to thank all the vendors and booth operators that I interviewed for their time and for sharing their experiences. I'm Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. You're listening to 88.1 WKNC, and this is Taste of the Triangle. I'm your host, Will Mayo, and for those of you who have not heard my segment before, Taste of the Triangle seeks to inform you of the rich food culture in Raleigh and the surrounding area. For Diversity Week, I chose to cover David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar. Though it has a simple name, David's offers a variety of Eastern dishes that are more authentic than the alternatives that come in a takeout box. I was able to interview the owner head chef of David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar, as well as his events manager and a server. The three had a lot to say about the restaurant, but one thing they certainly agreed upon was the incredible quality of their dumplings. It's our dumpling, a whole lot different than, than the dumpling in the market. It's all handmade, you know, hand roll. We make our own dough from square and wrap it individually, single piece. We recently were named Top Dumplings in Wake County with the annual Indie Food Awards, Reader's Choice. If you think you've had a good dumpling, just wait and try ours. They're the best. The first voice you heard was David Mao. He's the owner and head chef of David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar. David first came to the United States when he befriended a GI during the Vietnam War. Events manager Kim Kyle recaps the story. Hal wanted to learn how to make dumplings, and David wanted to learn mathematics and to learn to speak the English language. Hal sponsored David to move to America, and they have been next-door neighbors now for 40-some years. So they uh, became friends over dumplings in David's family's restaurant in Vietnam. Hal is not David's only neighbor. David makes it a point to be a neighbor to the community that he has become a part of. To reflect that in the business sense, Ms. Kyle says they do a lot of private events. We're hosting wedding rehearsal dinners, receptions, prom events. David just wants to remain an active part of his community that he has lived in, in the Cameron Village area for 40 years. When David first became a part of this community in the 1970s, he realized Raleigh did not have a niche for Asian food. So he created the Mandarin House, a kind of typical Chinese restaurant. In the 70s, when I had the Mandarin house, 
and I studied with typical like American Chinese food or like chow mein, chop suey, like fuyang. This was successful for him for quite a while, but towards the turn of the century, there was a shift in American palates to crave something a little more authentic. From then on, try to you know introduce you know the the more Chinese food in America. It's not American Chinese. Chinese food, you know, you, we can serve without rice <laughs> or soy. <laughs> and uh, Chinese food, we will not use a lot of butter or, or cheese. I just try to uh, introduce the better Asian food to the American public. While maintaining traditional values, David tries to create a lot of unique dishes. One such dish is his take on the traditional lion head. A uh, lion head that we saw over here is, is my own creation, you know, like a meatball, but uh, infused with scallop inside uh, the meatball. And then uh, we serve with a Chinese uh, baby broccoli, you know, and it tastes real good. And a lot of people try and they do like it. I have not personally tried the lion head, but the expansive menu at David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar has a lot of interesting options. The staff does a really good job of making these options available to the common person. Server Eston Dickinson explains the methodology behind this. I try to explain the menu so that it's custom to what the customer is looking for, but also open them up a little bit to something they may not have tried before. The staff has certainly steered me towards many tasty choices. A couple of my favorites are the Malaysian curry noodle soup and the green papaya salad. So the next time you decide to order takeout, maybe reconsider and pop by David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar just east of Pullen Road on Hillsborough Street. A vast menu, a warm and welcoming staff, and authentic choices make David's Dumpling and Noodle Bar another tasty slice of the Triangle's culinary pie. This has been Taste of the Triangle. Thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. Happy Diversity Week at NC State. As my contribution to our themed show today, we'll be taking a look at a slightly older album, but a good one nonetheless. That album is Pink Palms by The Bots. As always, I'll start off by answering the question of just who are the bots? In a genre where most bands are predominantly comprised of Caucasian musicians, the bots is comprised of brothers Mikaya and Anaya Lay, who are African-American. The duo hails from Los Angeles, California, and debuted in 2014 with today's album Pink Palms. 
Their sound can be described as garage rock, and that's the subgenre I'm going to stick with, since I think it's pretty clear-cut in this case. The brothers are also fairly young, having recorded their first self-released album while one was 15 and the other was 12. In short, the bots stand out in a crowd of other acts by background alone, and they've got the music to back it up. Onto the album itself, as I said before, it's fairly well within the realm of garage rock. I'd like to say I detect some minor art rock influences, specifically from TV on the radio's more upbeat songs, but maybe that's a bit of a stretch. Less of a stretch might be to say that I think I detected a touch of Matt and Kim, but that's still a bit on the nose. Either way, Pink Palms certainly doesn't take much influence from the noise rock scene as far as I can tell. This album stays fairly low distortion, with laid-back, occasionally harmonized vocals and some slightly crunchy overdrive. The album also features some light synth work on songs like All of Them, which is actually the name of the song and not a statement on all of the songs on the album, accompanied by the ever-present upbeat rush of the standard drum kit. Most songs on the album are in fact fairly upbeat, ranging from high-octane to enthusiastic jam levels of excitement. The immediate talking points of the album are clear as soon as the second song, Blinded. The first is the professional level of polish applied to this debut. While the duo has self-released three prior albums, this is still fairly impressive, especially given the age of the brothers at the time of prior releases. This album not only shows that a good amount of work went into rehearsing, recording, and production, but also that the bots have worked down a solid style. Whether or not they've found their sound is up for debate, but if they haven't yet, these brothers are certainly on their way there. I'm not blown away yet, but with this level of talent and production quality, their next album could really be something. The second talking point is both a strength and a downfall of the album. While it's great that the band has a style down, the consistency of the album borders on being excessive. I think a good album should be fairly consistent in some respects. You know, unless you're Ween, in which case you can do whatever the hell you want from one song to the next. A good album avoids throwing too much at the listener at once and keeps a fairly consistent but varied ride throughout. If that sounds contradictory, that's because it is. It's a daunting task to put together an album that sounds like a coherent piece while not letting your songs bleed together, and I don't think that Pink Palms made it to that perfect balance. There's nothing too outlandish on there, so that's good, and the songs aren't just some homogenous mess, so that's not bad either. But at times when listening to this album, you get the feeling that the band's holding back. That the highs and lows are just alright at best, never venturing far past that safe area in the middle. Kinda like the roller coaster at the state fair. Yeah, it's fun, and it's way better than what you have at the county fair, but when you look at it from the street, it's still pretty average. Despite this, I think it's still a great ride, and I'd gladly abuse a few tickets on it for like, an hour or so. In all, Pink Palms is an enjoyable garage rock jam, and I encourage you all to have a listen and keep an eye out for future albums from the bots. On a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a 3. It's above average and enjoyable, and that's all you need sometimes. Thanks again for listening in. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Plesk, Bloatstar, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by emailing publicaffairs at wknc.org or by sending a tweet to at wknc underscore EOT. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time.
Hello, this is Jake Winters for Eye on the Triangle. This is Snowberated, and this week I will be taking a look at the film Boy, written and directed by Taika Waititi. Taika Waititi is slowly starting to become one of my favorite directors, as well as it seems the film worlds. He's currently working on the big-budget film Thor Ragnarok, which could be said to be one of his bigger films that he's worked on. He also directed a film I recently reviewed, which fits the fall season we are just getting into well. The film is What We Do in the Shadows. You can listen to my review of that film on our blog, as well as any others I've done in the past. The two films he directed and acted in that I've seen, Boy and What We Do in the Shadows, show a style that I hope continues to pervade much of his independent work. He has worked with Jermaine Clement in the past, notably as a writer on multiple episodes of Flight of the Concords. There are some influences from that style of comedy that Flight of the Concords employs. Boy has a dry humor at times that is characteristic of Flight of the Concords, and I enjoyed its use in Boy. I would put Taika Waititi into the category of filmmaker that likes to consistently use a style specific to themselves. A good example of this taken to an extreme is Wes Anderson. His movies are far from the normal movie, and you can obviously tell. And so when you watch a movie that was made by Wes Anderson, you can tell it was made by him. And this is very similar to a film made by Taika Waititi. Boy started out as a film that seemed to me to have a naive and childish view of the world. We are always seeing the world through the eyes of the main character that goes by the name of Boy. And slowly we see how he begins to realize who his idols are and how they change in meaning to him. We watch as Boy slowly loses his innocence and comes to term with it after realizing what has happened. Though we don't see much of his state of realization, the culmination up to the point is far more important. Boy's quiet younger brother was also a focus of the film, taking time to reflect differently on the very similar situation that the two boys are put into. I've seen movies with Taika in them in the past, but I could almost not recognize him at the beginning of this film. The film is set in 1984, and the outfits stayed within the time period well, the way the film sets the time for the story was interesting. Just alone the style that the characters are wearing, it was not exactly enough to show that the time period was the 80s. I don't think this was a result of the costumes themselves not being representative, but possibly today's fashion is not so different from what it was in the 80s. Don't get me wrong though, there are many differences in fashion and huge ones at that, but on a basic level, some things have not changed. The style of the characters' closings provided some slight indication that the film was in a different time period than our current one, but then it was confirmed by the boys' fandom of Michael Jackson, who was then alive. The movie is essentially a coming-of-age film. Boy starts young and innocent, and by the end of the film, he decides he doesn't even want to be called boy anymore, signifying more than just a change in personal preference. It's not like many coming-of-age stories where you feel relieved near the end of the film that everything has worked out well, but rather leaves you feeling almost as lost as Boy himself surely must feel. It is one of those movies where you know almost nothing has changed for our main character except for his perspective. The grandma leaves at the beginning of the movie and then returns at the end of the movie, signifying that for the most part, things are the same. Even after the credits begin to roll for a second, they show the cast of the movie performing some sort of dance, which could be seen as signifying that Boy's perspective of his father and those around him has changed only ever so slightly, and he will go back to being the happy kid he was at the beginning of the film. So, because the film Boy begins and ends at almost the same point, it is a movie purely about the journey, much in the same way that many say life is. You begin by receiving life, and at the end it is taken away. What is in between will always have meaning to the one that lived it. 
I'm going to give this movie a 3 out of 5. It was a good watch, nothing mind-blowing, but it was very touching in a familiar way, and it does so with interesting and unique characters that develop each in their own unique way as well throughout the film. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of Eye on the Triangle and Snowverated. I'm Jake Winters, and I hope you enjoyed the rest of your evening. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. The time is 4.58, and I'm Marissa Jordan. And I'm Nick Weaver. Before we go, let's have a quick look at ongoing diversity education uh, events at NCSU. Uh, Marissa's going to go ahead and read that for us. Yeah, we have a couple interesting titles, like um, Our Culture is Not a Costume, Very Relevant. You know, with Halloween coming up, there's increasing visibility of uh, uh, disabilities. And where are those going on at? Um, The first one is happening at Winston Hall today, actually, at 630. I would highly suggest going to that one if you want to make sure you don't, you know, offend any cultures this Halloween. Um, And then increasing visibility of disabilities is also today at 7 o'clock. We would read off some more events, but we're about out of time. Uh, That about does it for this week's show. Thanks for joining us on this special Diversity Education Week theme broadcast. 